Hey guys, it's me, Chris Denson from Innovation Crush. Yeah. Guess what? Uh, coming up, October 29th is the world's first live streamed stand up comedy festival called Comedy Binge. October 29th, starting at 1 o'clock p.m., you can go to comedybinge.co slash stream. You'll see 50 amazing up and coming comedians doing their best material. You have performers from all over the country. You can watch on your smartphone, your computer, your tablet, whatever you have in your pocket or in your home. You can watch it on. And guess what? If you're a listener of this show, you can get 20% off the tickets by just going to comedybinge.co slash stream and using the promo code CRUSH, C-R-U-S-H. And guess what? You got a headliner, Rob Hayes, who's been on Comedy Central, Fox, NBC. He has his own podcast called The Book of Yay. And I think you will have an amazing time. So yes, please go to comedybinge.co slash stream, use the promo code CRUSH and get your laugh on. No medium in history can match the velocity of television. No product has spread so far and so fast, commanded so much influence, and so fully affected how the world sees itself. The unprecedented power of television. Why are you laughing? Has made it a playbook of innovation. Um... Seth Shapiro, words. Uh, everyone, uh, welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. That was me reading, in case you didn't know. That was Chris good. Denson. Was that good? You should do the audio book. Make, I'll, I'll do it. How, what's, how, much, how much money you got? Um, $45. It, <laughs> might get you the first. I might just give you that sound bite for $45. Okay. Um, uh, in case you guys are tuning in for the first time, this show covers all things innovation, ideas, creativity, usually with a skew toward marketing. And uh, but uh, I want to talk to you, Seth Shapiro. Thank you. Well, for, thank for stopping by. Thank you for being here. Uh, you know, I, I love your show. Thank I mean, you. We're friends, but I really do love your show, and and it's an honor to be here. Now that was worth the forty-five dollars. Um, so why don't you do the audience a favor um, and give a little bit of a I don't know a ninety-second version of of who Seth Shapiro is? Because I mean, your resume is kind of ridiculous. So I'm 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 curious to see how you even sum it up. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you some stuff that you don't know. So oh. we've never had a chance oh. to talk about it. So I started as a musician when I was a kid and. Uh, did a lot of uh, composing and, and electronic music stuff, and I went to NYU, and down the hall was a bunch of vagabonds. I've never told you this story. And they always had all these uh, crazy lunatic artists down uh, in, in the lobby hanging out, smoking weed. And long story short, the guys down the hall were Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons, and the guys in the lobby were the Beastie Boys, LL Cool J, Public Enemy, um, and Run DMC. And so as a musician, I kind of watched that sort of hip hop go from this sort of local thing to this big niche thing. And Rick used you to watch the get down. I watched the whole thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm really lucky that way. And so Rick said this thing years ago that I thought was great, which is that at the time, white kids were listening to records from 15 years ago and black kids were listening to records from last week. And there was this real feeling in the hip, you know, when hip hop was sort of still this, ah, it's a fad. It's crazy. Nothing will ever come of this right. in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the mainstream. Stupid world. rhyming. Just, yeah, beats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Turntables. Turntables are hard. <laughs> this is horrible. Blasphemy. The scaling. Um, you know, there was, you re, it, I got lucky enough when I was really young to watch something really innovative, really fresh and really new happen. And I started a label, which got me more and more into electronic production and then gradually became convinced that what was happening in the music business would probably happen to everything. Um, and so I had some records that were distributed nationally, but as you know, from your own experience, music's a real punishing business. So eventually I decided to move out to LA because I figured digital would happen here. And I started over, learned to code, and I got here literally right before the web kind of took off. So early on, I was one of the few people who could actually write code, but was actually a producer who owned a company. So I worked for a bunch of people. I worked for Glenn Jones, who was this cable billionaire who started a digital division. And then I went to work for a company called Davidson and Associates who bought Blizzard. And I did a bunch of educational software projects. And then I went to Disney uh, and ran a line of CD-ROMs. But weirdly, because the record label business is so bad, I had to get a day job. And just total luck, I went into like an employment agency. And the job I wound up getting was like an interactive television before it existed. Like literally the first startup, one of the first startups called ACTV. So just really early on, I had the sense that this thing was going to happen, that there was going to be some sort of two-way video medium way before it had happened. And I decided this is what I want to do, but it was just too early. 
So anyway, you know, 10, 15 years later, I'm at DirecTV producing a bunch of products, and I'm always looking to see when TV is going to get digitized and turn into this new thing. Right. And one day, DirecTV has an ad for literally a day on The Hollywood Reporter that they're going to start an advanced services unit. And I had been like a big fan of TiVo when they launched, and I knew that DirecTV and TiVo had a deal. This is like 99. And so I wrote to DirecTV, and I think like 30 seconds after I saw the ad, I said, I'm the guy. Here's what I've been doing the last 15 years that never added up till now. And I think they emailed me back like two minutes later. I went in for an interview. And I think I got hired like the next day. Wow. And, and that division, the advanced services division, uh, a direct TV at the time, I think it was employee number four. There's probably, I don't know how many hundred people in there now, um, a long time later. And so did the TiVo launch and a lot of, uh, you know, the original, you know, sort of digital um, TV way pre-second screen. So the NFL stuff and the HBO stuff and the Showtime stuff. And then I had a friend who was a venture capitalist who said, you know, when Google YouTube happened in 2005, I had a friend who uh, said, you know, venture money is starting to flow into this stuff and you kind of know what you're talking about. So you should start advising these, these guys. Right. And so then I, that's when I left. So I left DirecTV about uh, 10 years ago and I've been working for myself ever since. And it's just been sort of all over the map um, from venture and private equity to startups. I mean, now a lot of VR and AR. Um, I did a lot of over-the-top service development for a long time. So I've just been lucky that I've been able to do a lot of stuff that's interesting to me um, that, you know, I've been able to get paid to do. How did, how did you hold on for 15 years? Because, I mean, if, if you're like in a vacuum, you know, and you see the world, uh, there's this theme kind of that arises in the show. And I think innovation is kind of this lonely journey. Right? It is Like you, you see a vision and you're like... You held on for a long time. Like I got like a six month window. I'm like, if this does not happen, I'm like, all right, I'll catch up to it in five years from now. But, um, but to say, you know, Directv, finally, this is everything that I've been doing, and of course, you're the guy because they're, the, you know, they start to have a vision uh, that matches up with where you were you know, a dozen years ago. So, like, what kept you going? Kind of just seeing this light at the end of the tunnel, but very slowly getting toward it. Well, that's what I love about your show. Um, the fact that I think all of your guests say in one way or another that you kind of start with where you are and you figure out, okay, what's the most interesting thing I can do now that exists and how does it position me for what's going to come next? Because if you can have the best idea in the world, if the world isn't ready for it, if the world isn't right. ready for it, you're screwed. And, and a lot of people, you know, they have astonishing ideas, but they're just too early. Um, and so like in the case of that, like, it felt like it would be interesting to kind of watch TV get reinvented, but if the t but if TV wasn't ready to get reinvented and broadband wasn't good enough, there was no point. So you do something else. So like at the time, it's a great question. Like educational software in like the you know mid nineties or the early nineties, that was a cool thing. It was good for kids. You know, we both have kids. It was meaningful. It might not have been like the goal of my life, but going eventually, you know, starting there and learning how to design for, for kids was an honorable thing to do. And it, it paid the bills. And I learned a lot. And I met a lot of people. And then from doing it at a smaller company, I wound up doing it at Disney, which opened a lot of doors. So I think it's kind of a, a one, even though it's not a great answer, I think it really is kind of a one foot in front of the other. But it is lonely. It's funny you say that. I think, you know, and you see this with a lot of startup guys and a lot of really innovative people. They see this thing that's going to happen so clearly and it'll kill them, you know, yeah. if they let it, right? You got to kind of keep one foot in, in today. That's, an, uh, you know, and I think it parallels a little bit to how my career has sort of unfolded where it's like, all right. Uh, I kind of gravitate towards this natural unfolding and I kind of don't know what's going to unfold next time, but I've kind of built up this really weird arsenal of resources and just personal interests, you know, both quote unquote personal and business wise. Um, what did you see unfold? And maybe a better way of phrasing it is like, what was the thread? Cause I eventually like I discovered like, Oh, this is what I've been up to. And I would imagine when people call Seth Shapiro, it's because of X, but what was that like journey of watching the thread unfold to, to where you are now as an author of a, a the back of the book I just read? Um, I think, I think media in one way, but uh, everything in another way is on this, this big, long journey from more and more passive to more and more active, from more and more one way, more and more from a monologue to a dialogue. And, and, you know, you see it and you saw it first in a big way in media, but now you see it in, in, in Uber and Airbnb and, 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 um, all of these things, all these things. So I think like just from, um, just from being at it and failing and trying different things that didn't work, like I, you kind of develop this instinct for, um, 
how far can you push the envelope and with whom next? And so it's always to you, you know, it's always a journey. It's always, well, I'm going to do this thing next. And then maybe that'll help lead to open this door to get me here. Because, you know, frankly, if I had, you know, like, uh, and, and when I met you, it was it, I met you because of a dear friend of mine, of our, a mutual friend of ours named Suzanne uh, Stefanik said, you got to meet this guy. He's great. And I think you were working at the AFI digital. I was. Lab. Yep. And like, um, that was like so. That was like the early two thousands, I guess. And and then you did all this stuff in advertising. You have this amazing show. I mean, I imagine it's it's been similar for you. I think like the inflection point for me, honestly, in a big way, was uh, from the stuff at Directv. I wound up winning two Emmys, and that was like you know, there's an element of world validation, and you you something becomes your calling card. And David, you'll appreciate this. David Letterman said something in Rolling Stone like twenty years ago that I always remember that. Um, you know, as a comedian, he tried all of these different things and he said, I had no idea what was going to work. And he's like, when I finally realized that this thing, you know, that Letterman, sardonic, whatever, absurd thing. Um, he said, when I, when you finally realize what it is that's going to work, it's like finding gold in your junk drawer. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I was like gold in your junk drawer. Like, okay, you mean this, this is what's going to work. I thought you were going like, to say gold in your junk. Yeah. Well, that, which that, that would, I already had weird. Yeah, yes. well, you, 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 Piercings. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's a different show. Um, but yeah, like I think you kind of keep at it and then suddenly there's something that people get to know you for and you, you kind of ride with it, but you don't know where it's going to come from. There is like a let I had a friend who used to say at some point you have to get your card punched. And I think that's true. Like at some point you have to do something that puts points on the board. So people do come to you more. Um, and, and you got to find a way to do that, that kind of works within whatever the existing creative or economic situation is, is like, maybe you did it. I think a lot of it in, in, in advertising, you know, um, like for me, it was obviously TV. Um, but you gotta, you gotta find a place that needs you or that needs something. And then you got to add as much value as you possibly can. And, and understand, and like, for me, it was like, all right, I'm just going to keep paying it forward, paying it forward. And eventually it's going to pay off. And then, you know, um, eventually it did. That's great. I, I mean, just to have the, those levels of perspective and to be attentive to stories like that, that kind of, I don't know, they, they act as little motivators, right? You're like, okay, cool. I'm like, I'm, I'm almost there. Um, what, I don't know. I, I think about, the, I wrote this down. I wrote governor, author, consultant, witness, professor. Um, how do you balance all this stuff, right? And I think you, it's all sort of under one umbrella, but... I always find that when you're a true multi-hyphenate, you know, even under a, a specific lens, um, it's hard for people to know what to, you know, how to how to approach you or what, you know, what that phone call is supposed to be when it's a Seth Shapiro call. Um, how do you go about like organizing your own personal brand message? Um, and I'm going to compliment you before you answer that, because when I read your LinkedIn description, I felt like it was three tiny paragraphs that were like chock full of like amazing stuff. And I felt like it was a really good job of succinctly telling your story. But, you know, how do you jump all this stuff together when you're in a meeting and somebody's meeting you for the first time? Thanks. I mean, uh, like, I guess the top line, I, I you know, is advisor, you know, like a consultant advisor is, is like the, the main thing. But I, I can't really like it in a way. Like to what you just said, like, I, I, and I, I feel like I do a pretty crappy job of it, but um, you kind of just say, look, here's what I've done. And if you're interested, call me. And then like, it's still about like trying to provide value. So I'm busy, but I try to write as much as I can and put out as much as I can. I don't do it enough. Like I have a column in the New York Observer and I almost never, my friend Ryan Holiday, who's a, you should have him on if you haven't. He's astonishing. Um, um, but but you know, he was kind enough to, he actually advised me when I was doing the book proposal and he said, you know, you should do a column here. It'd be amazing. And I, I don't make enough time to do that stuff. I should do more. But I, I, I think the answer is you just kind of keep putting it out there, putting it out there. And in the end of the day, I think a lot of it has to do with people. Like I, w I, I was just at the Vancouver Film Festival and I got back and this morning I was tired and I have kids like you do. And I don't know that kind of like I try to gamify life. I don't know if that makes sense. Like I try to think, all right, well, what's the fun in this rather than the have to go do this or whatever. So today I was like, oh, good. I get to go see Chris. Yep. And I just kind of focused on, all right, I'm going to get to hang out with you. And I love your show. And I sort of rev myself up to do that. Um, and today that's the portion. Right. And tomorrow um, I have a, 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 a negotiation for a client like like the total opposite, like kind of you know, traditional media deal. And tomorrow that'll be the day. And, um, in terms of what anybody makes of it, I, I don't really know. I think, I think you just try to 
that's a crappy answer, but I think you just kind of try to put good, good stuff out there. Like at the beginning of your career, when you're young, you kind of have to figure out what you want to do. But I think once you've done a lot of stuff, you kind of just have to let it speak for itself. And hopefully I think a lot of it is word of mouth. Like the yeah. same way that Suzanne said, you got to meet Chris. I think people say to me, you got to meet so-and-so or somebody says, you got to meet me. And then, and then we kind of take it from there. Um, I don't know if that's a good answer. It's a terrible. No, just, it was, <laughs> no, it's <was> perfect. Disgraceful. <laughs> no, you, you've done this a thousand times. That's the, that's, that's the great, you're a storyteller. I think at heart, you know, or, or at least you understand the mechanics of storytelling, right? Especially across multiple mediums, which I'm going to pick up this book. How many pages do we got here? We, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's 88,000 words. I don't remember. 88,000 words, 45 bucks. Come on, man. Um, no, d- let, why does this thing exist? And, and, and tell me a little bit about it. So, um, there were two threads. One is I started teaching at USC uh, about five years ago, and I wanted to give – I teach digital media and its impact on, on, on the media industry. And um, I wanted to recommend a, a book to the class, and I couldn't find one. And I thought, you know, like there are so many incredible stories in the bi- – like when you're in the business, you hear all these – we all hear all these stories, and the stories are what's amazing, right? Storytelling, right? The people who build all of these things, whether it's, you know, whether it's Apple or Google or – Uber or CBS or NBC, it's really, it's always the story of people, people who, you know, it, it, who did various things, uh, you know, at the right time or the wrong time. And I thought, well, there's no book around here that really tells how, how this stuff happened. Um, and then at the same time, I had been thinking about um, doing a book on on this platinum age of TV that we're in now, like how did TV become this, this great mm-hmm. thing, right? So I started doing interviews, like I interviewed the president of AMC and the, 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 the former CEO of HBO and, and, you know, the former head of entertainment at NBC and all these guys. And I started writing and writing this book that was going to be about now. And I realized you can't tell a story of where we are now without explaining where we came from. And so I thought I actually had an advance for the book and was going to be like a, a now book. And then I realized, you know, no one's ever really explained how um, this happened. And what, what I found out, Chris, like in the process was for all of the things that people say about going, maybe Elon Musk and Mars is the best example. Like as, as far-fetched as that sounds now, TV was way stupider. It sounded <laughs> right. way stupider as an idea. Like the idea that you could actually send pictures through the air just sounded like the most imbecilic thing. Wizard. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Charlatan, <laughs> burn him at the stake. And so like, I kind of thought, well, how did that happen? And nobody had ever really put it in one place. So I thought, well, maybe I'm just going to go back. And um, so here's what I found out in the process of looking how TV happened and how radio happened and how we kind of went from the early days of TV and early days of radio into, you know, like the high point of the networks and then into now is it, it's so much like now, man. I mean, it's, it's like I, the, 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 the preface in the book is this quote from uh, both Peter Pan and Battlestar Galactica. They both use the same quote, which is all this has happened before and it will all happen again. And like, if you go back 80, 90 years, it's so much like today. It's eerie. It's just eerie how there were all these kind of market forces and nobody quite knew what's up. And there was this optimism and this anxiety and so I thought, well, what do I tell the story of how all of that happened and the people who made it happen in a way that sort of captures the stuff that they did that we can learn from? So, like, are you a musician? Somewhat. So, so, so I'm, like, a, I'm a shower beatboxer. <laughs> so, like, you know, um, like that's like the first thing you learn in music, right? There's only 12 notes. So, like, whether you were Bach or Haydn or you're doing it now, you're still kind of grappling with the same thing. And I don't think human nature has changed so much. So, there's this aspect of innovation. Um, that and like the you know the the subtitle of the book is innovation disruption and the world's most powerful medium. I really wanted to try and figure out who are the people who really created the, the innovations that took this thing to become such a powerful force, like that that you know kind of spread this global influence and everybody watching the same shows all over the world and all this, and, and you know like and who got screwed right like who got knocked out of the box like right. what happened with people who didn't adapt? like the silent movie stars are like the vaudeville guys get dis- radio. Uh, and vaudeville fight it out, and then TV and, and radio duke it out, and online and TV are duking it out now. And and on one hand, you got like the existing media companies, and on the other hand, you've got Apple, Google, Facebook, and Amazon. And I thought, well, like in the process of of reading about this stuff, I realized, you know, so much of this stuff that happened before is so useful for if you're an innovator now. Yeah. Um, what are, uh, maybe you have an example of a principle of survival. I think that's an interesting lane for this kind of 
progression and growth. Cause you're right. There's been a lot of people who've come and gone. And there's a lot of people who were there since the beginning. Um, what, what, what did you learn about survival in, you know, in this process? That's a great question. Um, that there are certain things that are, uh, uh, it's in one of uh, Albert Brooks's movies where uh, it's it's defending your life. He's mm. he's with uh he's with um um Rip Torn, I think, and he said they're talking about why he didn't ask for more money in this job interview or whatever. And he says, well, there was a smell, something like there was a smell in the room, <laughs> and the smell said fifty thousand dollars. Like in, in in his example, he may have been wrong, but I think there's just like stuff in the room. There's stuff in the environment. And, and the example that I use in the book is there's this guy, David Sarnoff, who isn't well known anymore, but is like sort of the first great media mogul and the, like one of the first great tech mogul. He builds RCA. He builds NBC. Incredibly influential guy on the one hand. Um, and he is an immigrant kid that comes here not speaking any English. Um, becomes Marconi, the inventor of radio's uh, protege, and basically dominates radio and TV for decades. Um, and then on the other hand, there's this guy, Philo Farnsworth, who's this kid from um, from the Midwest who's reading all of these science journals and tech publications, which are sort of like the like YouTube channels now. They're like what kids get into. Mm-hmm. It's like inventors at, at that point are the rock stars of, of their time. Like Edison is like you know the, the Zuckerberg or you know, or whatever of his time. So all these kids are like wannabe inventors. And so Farnsworth, this this kid starts reading all these technical journals and he starts reading about this crazy idea called television. And he's mowing a field one day. Uh, he's on the, the tractor and he's mowing. And suddenly he thinks, what if I could, what if you could like actually throw electrons on a screen the way that I'm sort of mowing in rows here? And what if you could repaint those electrons faster than the eye could see then you could actually right that would work that would be tv and he's i think he's 14 years old at the time and what he doesn't know is that that single realization puts him like 20 years ahead of major corporations all over the world he's the first guy to have the idea of how electronic television can work but it puts him in kind of the, the you know on the train tracks in front of this behemoth that's nbc rca which is like the microsoft apple YouTube, it's like the it's like the equivalent of Facebook, Apple, and and Microsoft. It's just it, it they, they just dominate the whole thing. And so, long story short, you know, RCA comes to him and they say, "We'll buy out. Come work for us." Um, and he says, "No, he's going to go it alone." And what he doesn't see that's in the room is you can't at that point compete with them. Right? They they are absolute intellectual proper IP trolls. They own all of the patents that control the rest of the industry. So even though he's right, Farnsworth, and even though he's first, ultimately they can crush him. And so like, I think one of the big things all the time is you kind of got to operate of the constraints of the environment that you're in. And no matter how good your idea is, if you can't sort of navigate the the jungle that you're in at that moment, you, you you know, that's the most important thing. It's ultimately, it's better to have a mediocre idea and work within the existing system to have the most astonishing idea in the world and, and wind up like Prometheus. You know? well, I was looking at it like artists, you know, it's like uh, we, um, uh, I had, uh, this guy's sorry, a uh, wolf's mouth. Um, Craig Thornton uh, is a guest in the show. Oh yeah. Yeah. And he does like, he does amazing work and it's interesting, like him in the craft, like in the middle, in the midst of you watch him do it. And it's amazing. Him explaining it is like it's a different it's a different thing, right? It's in a podcast environment, you're talking about art on the wall, art on your plate, and we carved out these things. And he's such a like high functioning, philosophical, intelligent person that his his communication of the vision is like a little bit beyond where you know. So, so it's an interesting thing for somebody like Philo or Joe Schmo today has like this vision, you know, and sometimes they can't dumb it down. Like, is there, is that where teamwork comes in or like, how do you, you know, when you advise uh, an entrepreneur, like how do you get them to even tone it down? Cause sometimes that's hard. Yeah. That will. And, and it's not necessarily, it's not really their fault because if you're carrying that idea, and, and it consumes you, then you probably can't translate it. You always need a team. There's only so far that you can go um, on your own. So at a certain point, you cannot go, you can't go it alone and you have to create a team that balances each other out. So yeah, that's a big part of, of what I, what I like doing is trying to, 
We're doing picks. <laughs> uh, I never make it that deliberate. I was just like, was I, good. I wanted to, yeah. and now you're playing you. books and uh, I'll tag it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, all, all seven of my followers. Yeah. So like, I think that's a big part of it. And again, it's something you can't really do yourself. If you're the, if you're the person carrying the vision, you need some other people to come in and help you build the house around it. And, and um, I think trust, uh, like the part of being a real innovator is a lot of times um, you have this vision and you want to see it through because you're so passionate that it needs to be a certain way. And that's, that's dangerous in and of itself, because if you don't have a team of people around you to balance it out, classic example of how to do it right. uh, would be like Lennon and McCartney, right? Mm -hmm. You have these two incredible talents that in some way are, are competing, but you know, they made it work together for a long time. And, and I mean like that, that's just sort of like a great, you know, gold standard for how to do it. And I'm, but I mean, if you look at most of these stories, most of the great innovation stories, it's, I don't think it's ever one person. It's always at least two people. You may not know the face of it. You may may not know. Like, so like, you know, obviously people talk a lot more about, about jobs than they do about Wozniak, but there'd be no app without Wozniak. And we all know that it it always takes a, a village, I think. No, that's great. I also look at it as like you need a translator of some sort, right? And and it also feel like I think groupthink or you walk into a room to pitch and if it's just you versus, you know, people uh, who are, are there. But there's also like this, the journey becomes what we talked about earlier. Like you're, it's a lonely thing at first and then eventually you have to get people on board and you may not have a real value proposition other than a vision. You know, how do you how do you attract and retain people to work on something in its earliest stages when it's just blood, sweat and tears and, you know, your family's hungry? <laughs> yeah, well, well that, that's that's a big question. Cause I think and I think this is a, a good point, because I think today we sort of glamorize like getting funded your series a is like you know more people talk about how much money they've gotten from investment dollars than what they've actually earned you know in revenues so that just to put it in context sorry yeah um well that's that's an interesting aspect of the whole uh sort of funding mythology this sort of culture of funding i mean ultimately it doesn't really matter how much i mean at the end of the day if you raise a lot of money but your company doesn't survive and the product doesn't actually last is that a win um I think, um, you know, well, let's break it into pieces. First of all, yeah, a lot of times it's really hard to translate what you do. I mean, it took us a while, you know, right? Like, it's really hard at first to say, okay, I have this idea. Now I have to step out of this idea and figure out how to communicate it to somebody who has no idea what the hell I'm talking about. Those are two different skills. Now, over time, you can develop both, but it's pretty hard. And that's actually one of the things that's interesting about, like, sort of the first era of media and the book is like wild west right you start like the the whole culture of like just thinking about like agencies and managers and producers versus writers all that stuff has to be worked out and if you look at businesses that succeed whether they're digital businesses or traditional businesses or whatever there's like a signal chain right like there's a process where okay i'm gonna do this and then i'm gonna communicate this much information to you and then you're responsible you're gonna handle this so outbound messaging might be a completely different person and then whoever sort of the visionary is they're gonna have to to some extent trust and communicate all right here's what i think we're doing and then there's somebody else is gonna say you know what the world nobody knows what the hell you're talking and as you know right like that happens all the time <laughs> so one of the big messages to startups you know um and and early stage, you know, well-funded companies that haven't really hit critical mass yet is you're trying to do eight things. Like don't, don't go out to the world talking about eight things. Talk about one, talk about two. And often you have to, they have to pair it back. You know, it's better to do one thing incredibly well than to try to do seven things. Yep. And, and, and that's, that's a big, I think that's a big stumbling block for startups. I also feel like, you know, uh, to some extent, an idea is also only as good as it's marketed. Yeah, right? absolutely. And that's like it's ninety percent of the time. It's not a real statistic, obviously, but it's an afterthought, right? And not really thinking of as you're designing this experience, this television series, whatever it is, you know, how are we also simultaneously going to cut through the clutter? You know, I have another photo app or I have another and maybe it works better than the existing one, but you still have to market the shit out of it in order in order to see any form of success, especially today. Um, I don't have a question there, but I think it's just another, you know, tangential piece to of the puzzle. Well, yeah, 100 percent right. Like you think about all of the times uh, uh, blue uh, 
VHS versus um, beta being a great example. Very often, um, you got two or more products that come to market. It's rarely the one, the technically superior one that wins, right? Like a lot of times, and this happens so many times where the people in the know go, oh my God, the A is so much better than B. They, you know, A, A, and B wins because they communicated more effectively. They spent more time on marketing. They spent more time developing strategic alliances. They spent more time creating rapport with the other people in the equation that, that they needed to win it over. Whereas the other guys might have built a better prod, product, but they were kind of in it alone. And, you know, loner being, you know, it's lonely enough to, you know, be an innovator, but if you don't create some alliances, you're making it a lot harder on yourself. Um, why do you love what you do? I mean, you're obviously very passionate and very good at it, but it's, it's, it's an odd lane to have carved out for, for yourself. Like, it, it sounds like you could have done anything, right? You started off music and, uh, but I think there's well, something. No, I mean, I, no, I mean, I failed at music because, um, that's a great example actually. Uh, cause I, you know, I like was, uh, trying to create a hip-hop label this is actually a good example of exactly what we're talking about i was trying to create a hip-hop label too late so um you know like you probably remember all these but most of them are gone so like warner brothers had to deal with cold chillin Mm -hmm. and obviously uh sony uh, cbs which is now sony had def jam basically there were enough there were enough people who'd gone before me that the world just didn't need another one of what i was doing right. um at the time and I, I mean i failed at that if i hadn't failed at that maybe i never I what did that feel like horrible i mean horrible and it's there in a weird way every day and uh teaching um it's like the one thing that i kind of want to convey that you can never really tell uh people they have to experience it for himself you have to fail and you have to, you have to have your heart. I think you kind of have to have your heart broken because until you do, you don't realize just how, uh, how hard this is. It's really hard to create something new, and it's really rewarding when it happens. But um, I really, really wanted to be, you know, a, a producer and a, and, and a music guy, and you know, I couldn't make a living at it. It just didn't happen. And so I think at the time I said. You know, when I was 20, I think I said, well, I'll give myself till I'm 26 or whatever it was, 27. And then that, when it came, I just said, all right, I got to go. And it, no, I mean, it hurt. I, I'm I'm a pretty good guitar player and, and I was a pretty good writer, but I didn't, I didn't touch a musical instrument for literally 10 years after that. It was like a relationship. You loved somebody so much, you couldn't even look at them, couldn't even get through their pictures. Out. <laughs> it was so, I mean, it took a long time before I could think about that again, but in a way it was a blessing because it forced me to go somewhere where there were a lot fewer people and a lot less competition. Um, you touched on this with the Philo story, this, the uh I, I love the idea of parallels right yeah, um hey i'm on grass and oh here you know here's wh- how this applies here um what although you abandoned music to some extent for a, you know a number of years what what about music kind of parallels to what you're doing today that's a really i'll tell you exactly what it is and i think about this a lot uh in in, in jazz harmony uh like there's this idea uh chord substitution like when you hear people like if you're a musician or if you're not and you hear people playing all this stuff you're like where does that come from so the way that it works for example is uh, like i'm trying to come up with an example that just doesn't sound ridiculous but like just as an example uh there's a chord called an an f major seven and it has a certain sound and if you heard it in a song it would sound real happy and nice and then there's another called called like a D minor six, maybe, for example. And that has a very different color and a very different tone, but the notes are the same. Um, so there are all of these things in music where it's all about context because you can only combine notes in so many ways. And so you kind of develop in your head this map of how to put things together in a certain way that's going to give you this certain color or tone, even though there are only 12 notes. And the people who are really astonishingly great musicians, like they find ways to bring these colors together out of a really limited palette, right? Because there's not a lot. Yeah. Of, music is like Western music. Like, again, it's only 12 notes. So how is it that we have so much original stuff and so much original stuff? Keith Richards said it really well once when they were like, well, you know, you're using the same three chords over what, all the way. He said, well, that's, that's the magic of what we do. Like, that's what I love about it. The constraints are so severe. They're like, we, the sound of the stones is so specific 
we have to constantly work to come up with something new. And it's the limitations that kind of force you to figure it out. So I think that's kind of what I learned in music. And um, that, that has been like a godsend because like you think about uh, data and video and marketing and all the, it, 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 they're, they're like notes and you figure out, well, how do you combine this and this in a way that's sort of like this, but we're going to take the C sharp and we're going to raise it to a D. So instead of marketing it via traditional media, we're going to, you know, do it with snap and you, you kind of look at the elements and you change enough so that you come up with something new, but it retains the integrity of something that already worked. And I, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but that that's what I learned from music. No, hundred uh, percent. You know, you, you you borrow from a few different sources, you know, to create create something that doesn't alienate an existing audience or you know group, um, but also is refreshing in yeah, some way. It's yeah, like, that, that's exactly right. The way that I kind of think about it is, you create something that's completely new but feels familiar in a way. Yeah. Um, what's, uh, what's, what's a new plateau for you? Like where, where do you want to go personally? You know, I see there's volume one, it says on the book, is, you know, is there volume two or is there like the, you know, the four year from now, Seth Shapiro vision you have for yourself <laughs> or does that exist? And you're just letting it all unfold. Like what, what's kind of like your, what are you reaching for? Yeah. Th- this is the two things. One is, uh, the next thing for me is going to be, uh, VRAR. Um, so I really want to, uh, you know, I have a bunch of sort of existing clients, but the thing that I'm really excited about is, is working with, you know, the right companies that, that I can help or, or that, you know, maybe I can add some value to. I'm really, really, uh, and it's funny thinking about the fact that I just wrote a book about the early days of TV. I, I, I'm, I'm convinced that the, the next big form of medium after, so we, let's just say we had uh, Telegraph, Radio and telephone, uh, telegraph, radio and telephone, television, uh, online video. Uh, let's just say that those are some of the major. Th- this is the next big one, and so for me, it, it's all about finding uh, companies in that space that I can help. Whether it's helping them strategically, and um, you know, same thing. Like let, let's take what you're doing and make the C sharp a D, and let's bring yeah. this partner into that. Um, so that that's the that's the thing that I'm passionate about. Although I have a bunch of day jobs and stuff. Um, in terms of the book, yeah. So this is volume one. Volume two actually begins where volume volume two begins where volume one leaves off. Volume one leaves off uh, for those of us who are old enough to remember with the big three networks, CBS, NBC, and ABC, sort of running the media world, being like the like the hugely culturally influential companies and thinking it's going to go on forever. And then volume two starts with the story of Ted Turner and John Malone, who basically, you know, lead the decimation of broadcast TV. So it starts with C so it tells the stories of how cable started uh, ESPN, CNN, MTV um, straight through, uh, you know, uh, the musty TV sort of friends, Seinfeld era at NBC, where I have some great interviews. And then it goes into the, to the rise of HBO um, and then AMC and Netflix. So it basically goes to around 2008. Um, and that one's fun because everybody's still alive. So I can actually get their real stories. And then the third one will actually be about um, online video. So that'll tell the story of YouTube, the MCNs, and then um, VR and AR, which would be too early to right now. What's an indicator of whether or not something will last, right? Like, Because I, I, part of me feels like the VR conversation, and I was talking about this earlier, is that the technology is kind of outpacing the consumer adoption, right? There's now, you know, in the span of two, three years, it's like, and you can do this on it and you can also do that. And it's like, no, nobody really has one, you know, nobody really has a, a, the means, uh, they don't have the headsets, so, you know? So, um, and I also think about that in parallel with like 3d televisions, like for a minute, like it was, that's all anybody talked about. And then people were like, yeah, it was cool. Like I, I have one. And then they never use the 3d functionality of, of it at all. So like what, and then maybe it's VR, AR, just other technologies you've seen kind of come along in the entertainment space. Um, what sort of indicators have you seen for like, okay, this thing is actually going to be here to, to stay. I'll give you, uh, that's a great question. I'll give you the, the thing that I think about the most. Um, and, and you used exactly the right example of the other case, 3d TV, was never creatively that interesting. 3D TV, as you know, was a big push from the consumer electronics companies who wanted to sell new TVs. There wasn't any content that was super interesting. So you had one sort of segment. Like if we talk about like it takes a village and all the aspects of the creative. Like I always think the three big terms of, of anything are creative, 
business model, and technology. And when things are interesting, there's some combination of those, of at least two of those or three where there's a breakthrough. 3D TV was all about the technology. It wasn't interesting really from a business model perspective. There wasn't new money in it for most of the mm-hmm. distributors or whatever, But and there wasn't anything that creative about it. The the thing, I'll get, one of the answers in terms of the VR, and it's a great That's kind of like a because we can kind of. Well, like play. if you think back to, it's like the same model as like, why, did, why does Intel, and Intel Capital is like the largest, you know, American funder, um, you know, l- largest venture fund. Why does Intel fund so many, you know, content companies? Because, you know, historically, the more demands you can have on the chipset, the more likely people are to buy new computers, the better it was for Intel. So that was kind of the 3D TV. People were just trying to figure out crap to sell new TV sets, and it just wasn't that interesting. One of the differences with VR is it's much bigger than than media or one sector. So like, as you know, like the impact of VR on things like phobia treatments and distance learning and travel, uh, education, um, medical, they're, they're so enormous that even if the media business screwed it up and didn't come up with a way to monetize this technology, it's going to happen anyway because it's so impactful in, in, in so many other industries. So like just think you go to a hotel chain and – you know, the you know, you do a VR tour of their incredible uh suite, Emperor Suite in Bali. Or actually, even better example, you can see the room three floors above that's too big. You do a virtual tour of another yep. unit in the same hotel and upgrade. Or, or, you know, there's all sorts of so there's a great project actually uh this company's here in Culver City, a project called uh, the Walk VR, which was based mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. Philippe Petit's walk between the World Trade Center. So like here's this amazing thing in this VR project, and it's actually not even it's it's a little old, so the technology is not as cutting edge as stuff is now. But in this thing, you actually walk between the World Trade Centers and you look down. And even here's the amazing thing: even though your body knows it's fake and you know you're in a very safe conference room, three out of ten people cannot walk forward. They're so their, their lizard brain is so convinced that this thing that they're going to get hurt and they're going to fall to their death that they can't do it. So you start to think about the implication of that for like dealing with phobias or, you know, so, so anyway, long story short, there are all of these ways that VR is going to make money that are going to make it happen one way or the other. Good answer. (laughs) Thank you. Now I'm complimenting you for things you say, but your questions are great. (laughs) Um, Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I want to go back to this side, like the, the music parallel for a second and, you know, sort of that, the, the skill set of being able to improvise and combine and connect dots and also not like, and you teach, right? Um, can that skill set be taught or is that something that's innate that, you know, is like, I don't know, like, is, is, is that something you can teach people how to think spatially like that in, in terms of business? Uh, I think it's a matter of practice and um, like sometimes the best thing that somebody can do for you is tell you, uh, or the best thing, you, like my like for me, it was the music thing, right? Like there's a point where you go, all right, it ain't going to be this lane. It's going to have to be um, somewhere else. So there are those things where you see it a lot of times with performers, right? Like people, you, we both lived in LA long enough. You see people coming into town wanting to be actors. That's a really tough business. There's a very specific, and, I, I, and I'm not an expert at all, so I shouldn't even be talking about it. But there are things where it's just, it's just not going to be for you, um, but I, I think that's a relatively small subset. I think most of it can be learned. I mean, you mentioned teaching. Like the reason that one of the things that's great about teaching, I mean, is, you know, like if you're in front of 40 or 50, 20 or 21 year olds, uh, it, it three hours on a Wednesday night from seven to 10, you better learn how to communicate because they'll right. just, they'll just completely. I just put it. my head on sideways. So I look, yeah, so well, I look relevant. I, you, you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're good at it. Well, you do this, right? So this part of this is the gym, right? Just doing, I'm sure that's part of the reason you do this, doing this and having to interact with these people and make it entertaining. That's raising your game to a whole nother oh, level. Yeah. And you can actually hear it from the beginning of the time you started the show till now, just like, you you know, how, how much, you know, you, you could hear that, that, that like you're in the gym of that. I think the good thing about teaching is it forces you to figure out how to communicate 
communicate this because if you don't communicate it, they tune out. And then you go back to clients and you're in the same situation. Most importantly, when you're actually working on behalf of clients or projects that you believe in, you got it. Like for me, like if somebody's relying on me to communicate their message, I can't screw up. Like I got to be as effective as possible. So the more I practice, 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 the better. So that's why I speak as much as possible. That's why I teach. That's why I write. It all sort of connects. So even though it can be tiring and irritating sometimes, you're just constantly trying to figure out how to get better and better and better at it. I think that's much more important than, um, I think that's much more, it's, it's like, the, you know, uh, to your music example, I'm, the way the, or writing, like the way to be a good writer is to just write all the time. The way to be a great musician is to just keep playing all the time. And the, the way to be a good entrepreneur is to just keep working and working, working at those skills. Um, all the stuff that kind of makes uh, Seth Shapiro uh, you mentioned a few times kids, family, you know, but you also have an aggressive like travel. You have an aggressive itinerary of places you have to be. Um, where does work life balance happen for you? And like, how do you manage that stuff? Uh, here's how I rationalize it. If I were still working at direct TV or I was at Comcast or I was at Amazon or uh, Google or whatever, I'd probably be working. I wouldn't get home till eight five days a week and I'd be on the road anyway. So I work for myself and yeah, to your point, I am on the road a lot, but be the, the, the sort of the on the road again, on the road again, I'm just going to get, um, but yeah, oh, yeah like, there's a little music coming yeah, out. Yeah. All right. I heard of some, I love some him. vibrato. Well, it's, it's, that's what, well, he, Willie's a whole other story. He's an interesting <laughs> guy. Um, uh, so like I, I rationalize it. Like I got home last night, I got off the plane and I played with both of my kids. Um, and then, um, you know, I got up this morning and I, I was tired uh, but I, you know, I don't have to be somewhere Monday through Friday, so I control it. So maybe it's just kind of the illusion of control. And, you know, I mean, you, I, I think like, if you don't mind my saying, like you, you, you like show this yourself, we had an Emmy event and you committed to come and it was great that you came and you brought your daughter and she was great. She's a lovely kid and she's participating in your life. And you kind of just have to make that stuff work. And I think for people like us that are sort of in this gray area of, I should interview you next time. I'm curious <laughs> to hear your version of all this stuff. But I mean, you just make your schedule the best you can and you're as present with uh, everybody as you can, including your kids when you're with them. Uh, the show's called Innovation Crush. Um, I'm wondering, outside of the AR, VR thing, I'm going I'm to take that off the table. Uh, what do you see out in the world that you personally have an innovation crush on? Like what's out there that you're like, oh my gosh, that's all. Awesome. It can be cuisine. It can be art. It can be some of the stuff that we talked about. And you also can't say your book. Okay. Uh, my book. <laughs> my, my book is amazing. My book. Uh, one of them, one of the, like from a big level, real quick, uh, there's this thing about Uber and Airbnb and all of these things that seem like they're niche companies, like they're in hospitality or they're in, travel or, or or they're in transportation or whatever but that's not really what they're in what they're in is an exchange business and creating new efficiencies around services um the whole that whole idea fascinates me the whole idea that using a software stra stack and some sort of social uh you know sort of audience aggregation thing you can create a completely new uh experience and model and i actually just wrote this thing um, about about uh, this about Airbnb, like just the idea that suddenly you, you have this authentic travel where you actually stay in somebody's house. It's not just about the money. That's like a, a really interesting cultural thing. So all that stuff fascinates me. And like what the other industries that are going to get hit by that is really interesting to me. Um, so that's the big example. And then the really mundane uh, example would be I really thought that uh, Mr. Robot season two killed it. I hmm. thought that was really really good. Also an interactive Emmy nominee. And, and, and Rami won and, and well done. He, that was a great, that was a great, well-deserved win. Um, uh, it's funny you mentioned Airbnb. Um, I love the, the idea that I, I think you touched on something where it's like, I have something of value that I can also earn money for. Right. And even if it's just my shitty apartment. Right. Um, and that's empowering and, and it empowers a lot of people, you know, and, and if I leave this place, I can also make money. So if I go on vacation and the vacation costs me $5,000, I can make a little bit of money back just by, you know, so it's, 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 a, it's an empowerment thing. I have a vehicle. I'm social. Like, 
maybe that's your skill set. You know, I, I left my keys in an Uber and it took me about 10 hours to get him back from the dude because I didn't realize until the next morning because he was like, I've been like, I've been driving. Like he wasn't in wow. my neighborhood until eight or nine o'clock. And I called him at, you know, nine thirty once I realized where they were. And, you know, but we had a great conversation in the car. And, and I think that does it on the flip side. Um, I watched Adam Ruins Everything last night. Have you ever seen that show? Yeah, yeah. So there's a guy named, I forget his last name, but he basically demystifies all these things like actually Airbnb is blah 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 and he's like you know the the level of security you get by staying in a hotel fire alarms everything works he talked about how I think six people reportedly have had um, uh, I forget what the poison is, the poisonous gas in, in your house like whatever that Xenon gas or whatever something like that yeah and then he's like and actually two of them died and it, but he tells it real kitschy you know <laughs> and so there's this there's a balance between like the perception and what the company wants you to know but versus what you know the kind of social value it has so I, 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 I didn't have a point there but it was just like there's a downside it, yeah yeah exactly but it's also like it's new so it's still being worked out you know it's like if you're disruptive which is right on the title of your book there's a lot of things that need to be worked out once it sort of catches on you know and, and even over time like i know you're an expert witness and for like the fcc and so like all these the, the rules are always getting broken and we just need to fix them along the way um last but not least complete this phrase for me innovation to me is uh combining Combining just what we talked about, combining the existing uh, elements in a way that feels completely new, brings people happiness or utility um, and feels familiar enough to succeed. That's great. Um, where can people find you? Where do they go? I, I found the book on Amazon, um, but where do they find more? Seth Shapiro, um, you know. So, yeah, so SethShapiro.com is my site, so that's easy. And the book, if you just if you go to Amazon and you just put my name in, it'll come up. And I think if you go to books and put in television, it comes up in the in the first page. But yeah, it's Seth Shapiro Television. It'll come up on Amazon. I'm gonna leave you with one last one. Go ahead. I actually stole this from uh, our friend Ken Hertz, but but it's an interesting set, and he doesn't put it this way. But but to your other point, I'll just throw this out, and you could pick this up with with another guest. But there's this idea like I keep thinking about, which is in a way the value of a brand to your Airbnb thing. Yeah. There's downsides and whatever, but in a way that I I think, don't, I'm not going to be Airbnb. No, 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 like, no, I, I, I get it. Do no, it all you're time. right. You're right. You're right. You're right. But, but like, he, here's the plus side and here's like an aspect of innovation that I think is really interesting in a way, uh, brand value maybe equals utility plus delight. Hmm. Yes. Right? I agree. So, so it's like if you can give people something that's useful, that also is fun and brings them pleasure, you have a real edge. That's what Airbnb, that's what Uber did so well. It gave them a lot of, it gives people a lot of utility, but it's sort of fun. It's sort of transparent. There's all the feedback. So anyway, I'll leave with that. You could. Yeah, no, it's, it's like game of, like you saw, like a roulette thing. Yeah. You kind of don't know what you're going to get. And there's, yeah. there's fun in that. Um, well, thank you, man, for, for coming by. I'm thank you for having finally me. This did was this. fun. Yeah. I'm, I'm jealous of your shoes. Those are, uh, I'll get you a pair. Just yeah. give me your size. I know where to get them. 11 and a half. I got 11 and a half, baby. A 13. I'm a 13. Oh, wow. All right. The, 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 uh, the, the stereotypes are <laughs> false. <laughs> um, everyone, this has been another installment of Innovation Crush, and we will talk to you next time.